this is episode 12 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 12 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the Center. In this episode, we sit down with Gilbert Mylander, the Paul Ramsey Fellow at the CEC and author of Not by Nature but by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption, which kicked off the Center's book series with the University of Notre Dame Press entitled Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. We discuss his intellectual journey, the meaning of adoption for families and for Christians, and how he wants to be a burden to his children. Let's head into the Marion Short Ethics Library for this week's conversation. Well, I'm sitting here today with Gilbert Mylander. He is the Paul Ramsey Fellow at the Center for Ethics and Culture. Prior to joining the faculty of Valparaiso University in 1996, he taught at the University of Virginia and at Oberlin College. At Valparaiso, he held the Phyllis and Richard Duesenberg Chair in Christian Ethics until 2014. He served as an associate editor of the Journal of Religious Ethics, an associate editor for Religious Studies Review, and sat on the editorial board of First Things. Gill was a member of the President's Council on Bioethics from 2002 to 2009 and is a fellow of the Hastings Center. He has written or edited several books, including Working, Its Meaning and Its Limits in 2000, Bioethics, A Primer for Christians in 2004, The Oxford Handbook of Theological Ethics in 2005, and most recently 2016's Not by Nature but by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption, the inaugural volume in the Center for Ethics and Culture series Catholic Ideas for a Secular World with the University of Notre Dame Press. Welcome to the podcast, Gil. Thank you. So tell us a bit about yourself, uh, about your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you do your studies? Well, I'm a Midwestern boy. Um, I actually grew up, well, I was born in Illinois, but I grew up in northwestern Indiana, uh, really. Uh, Though then I did not live around here for, I don't know, 30 years at least until I took the job at Valparaiso. But I I grew up in Indiana, um, went through a series of church schools, um, uh, uh, all called Concordias. Um, It's not a very innovative uh, system we have. Um, Actually, the whole whole church system has changed since the time I went through it. Um, at At that time, uh, you went two years to uh, a junior college, and there were a variety of Concordia junior colleges at different places sure. around the country. I went to one in Ann Arbor, and then uh, students who, after their first two years, still thought of themselves as pre-seminary students, and since we'd started Greek uh, t- vocational discernment, um, uh, <laughs> took, a, took a turn, that's right, um, uh, but th- those who still... Uh, thought of themselves as pre-seminary from all the different Concordia junior colleges around the country were funneled into what we ingeniously called Concordia Senior College, um, which was uh, in Fort Wayne. That's the, the whole system has changed. That school doesn't even exist any longer. But so my last two years of college were there, uh, very kind of classical pre-seminary education, language training, uh, 
uh, Greek and Hebrew and mm-hmm. and Latin. Uh, um, Though you, Why do you roll your eyes? Well, you, you couldn't prove it by the state of my Latin uh, right now. Um, but um, uh, and then I went to uh, what we call Concordia Seminary uh, in St. Louis. Uh, graduated from there in '72 and went to uh, Princeton University, uh, the religion department at the university, for my PhD, which I f- uh, finished in 1976. Um, went to teach at Virginia for a few years, then went to Oberlin, where I was for 18 years, okay. um, before uh, coming to Valparaiso. So that's the back to Indiana. That's the, yes, uh, that's the short story. When you were at Princeton, did you study with Paul Ramsey? Yes, um, not only Paul Ramsey, but he was the main uh, uh, person, obviously. And I was an experience. I mean, that was uh, that was quite an experience to study with Ramsey. Um, it was very good. Well, I mean, here at the center, obviously, you're the Paul Ramsey fellow. Oh, that's so, right, yes. So right. what does that uh, – who was Paul Ramsey for you? As you say, it was an experience, but – Well, Paul Ramsey was um, – uh, I did not name the – the, the center's fellowship. fellowship, by the way. No, I, I guess Carter Steed came up with that. I'm not actually really sh- so. certain. Yeah. Um, but Paul Ramsey was, uh, who taught at Princeton for, us taught there for three decades at least, I guess, was um, uh, a really leading figure in the field of Christian ethics at a time when there was still some coherence to the field. It wasn't as fragmented as it is now. Uh, he came right at the tail end, really, of the period in which Christian theologians and religious thinkers still actually had some public influence. Uh, you know, um, uh, we think of Reinhold Niebuhr as um, kind of the epitome of that, and Ramsey was sort of just after uh, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and he he was w- well-known especially for his work in uh, just war theory, which he spent about a decade of his life uh, working on. And then he was one of the really early figures in this country when bioethics got started in the uh, mid-1960s, I would say. Um, he was, uh, and, and more theologians were involved in bioethics in those early years than it's gradually sort of become more public policy-oriented. Uh, sure. But Ramsey was a very important figure uh, in in the early years of the bioethics uh, movement in this country, um, and he was a he was a dominant personality. We could have a long talk about. It. I mean, he's just a uh, um, uh, and and well, a, a fellow graduate student of mine once called him an intellectual whip, and that's what he was. Um, he would his mind would just sort of wrap itself around an idea and go to work on it. And uh, I've thought about a lot of issues since uh, he died, and. Very often when I work them through, what I realize is that he was actually there first. Uh, he he, he kind of got there before I did. Um, he was just um, – if, if you spend your life in the academy, you're around a lot of smart people. But once in a while, you're around especially smart people, and he was one of them. Well, now, how did you get involved with the Center for Ethics and Culture? I mean, what, what's a nice Lutheran boy like you doing wrapped up with the – University of Notre Dame. Well, you know, I believe in inclusivity and uh, diversity, um, <laughs> as everybody does these days. Right. Um, well, it was years ago, and I don't really know how long ago, but back when David Solomon was still directing the center, um, I spent one year here as a fellow. Um, but even before that, I believe I had come over as what uh, David called a consultant for the annual medical ethics conference. I'd sure. done that for a number of years, um, given talks at it a couple times and served as a consultant uh, for it. So I'd had 
sort of regular uh, contact with the center for quite a while. Um, and then um, sometime after Carter uh, became director of the center, he talked to me about working out some kind of deal uh, to be here uh, on some sort of, to be connected with the center in some way or other, and this is what we worked out. Uh, and you would have known Carter through the oh, President's yes. Council as I well? I knew Car- Carter was the uh, uh, legal counsel, I guess we called him, for the President's Council on Bioethics, at least for a few years, not not yeah. maybe right at the start of the council, but uh, after that. And so that's where I knew Carter from uh, originally, sure. uh, since uh, we had a interesting few years on the council. Well, now, as I mentioned earlier, you've written or edited several books, and the topics are really wide-ranging, from bioethics to human dignity, the meaning of work, the effects of aging, to the last words of Christ on the cross, as we were talking about before we started recording. How would you characterize your own kind of academic and literary output, really, in in a way? I have never tried to think of my work as a as my work, uh, sort of, that people will think of as the Mylander uh, corpus or uh, something like that. Um, the grand project. Yeah, I, I take up questions that seem to me interesting and important um, and uh, work on them. I do think there are certain themes. I mean, I think anybody who looked closely at what I've done, if, if anybody cared to sit down and uh, work their way through it, I think there are certain themes that just it's obvious, uh, have been central. Um, I'm interested in the question of limits um, in the moral life. Uh, are there uh, limits? Uh, um, uh, even limits on uh, tr- ways in which we should try to do good things. Um, uh, uh, that's clearly a question that just recurs in various ways. Um, I'm, I'm, it's clear that I'm interested in the uh, in what ethicists tend to call special moral relations. In other words, um, uh, we may have obligations to everybody. We may be supposed to love every neighbor uh, 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 and even every neighbor who is an enemy, as Jesus says. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, it also, at least to most people, it seems clear that we have special obligations to certain people who stand in special relation uh, to us. I mean, familial bonds are one obvious case, but not the only one. The uh, the second book that I ever wrote was on uh, friendship. And as I always say, it, it, nobody should think that it's a little Hallmark card book on <laughs> how to be friends. Um, this, the subtitle is A Study in Theological Ethics, and it's really about um, if you have a, a an ethical system that has some sort of principle of universal other regard, the way Christians think about neighbor love, that you should love everyone— what exactly is the justification for the love of friendship um, in which we devote enormous amounts of our time and energy and resources to certain people? Um, That sort of question has always been very interesting to me. So um, limits, special moral relations, and then probably um, the meaning of our embodiedness, what the, uh, I mean, that's important in bioethics in various ways. Um, It's important in the adoption uh, issue, actually. Um, uh, What its claims on us are and what the limits of those uh, claims are. I think anybody who kind of, as I said, you know, cared to work their way through my stuff would say that those are the kinds of themes that have been of interest to me and that whatever the issue I've worked on, in one way or another, they tend to come out. And they seem to be clearly related to both ethical and theological issues as well. I mean, I hear incarnation. I hear 
proper relationship to created order. I hear things that that flow from our from our worship and from our mm-hmm. our creed. Oh, I think that's right. I um, while on the one hand, I uh, I read fairly widely, and in fact, I did a lot of work in philosophy. Um, back back when I I didn't mention that back when I was in seminary. I actually did a bunch of graduate work in philosophy at Washington University in St. Louis while I was there. I always used to say that after you'd had a couple courses in practical theology, you developed a strong desire to read Kant. Um, <laughs> but um, So I've drawn on lots of things, and I don't think that we have to talk exclusively in uh, theological or religious terms. But on the other hand, I don't think there's any reason for Christians to be uh, hesitant to Uh, think in those terms, and I generally do. Well, let's talk a bit about your latest book, Not by Nature but by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption. What is your personal interest in the topic? Well, insofar as I have had longstanding interest in special moral relations, and the family bond is one of those, obviously this will relate to that in a kind of... So there's a kind of a theoretical hook, Mm -hmm. um, just in terms of the the things I've been interested in. But um, uh, sort of more personally, over time, we, uh, my wife and I did, well, my, my wife and I and our children actually did foster care for 10 years when I was teaching at Oberlin and we lived in Ohio, uh, had uh, several foster children. Uh, one of them ended up uh, being adopted by us. Um, he's a, you know, a 30-something-year-old son. I can never remember the ages of my children. <laughs> but, um, uh, but, so we did that for uh, 10 years. Probably would have continued. Uh, we stopped it when we moved uh, to Indiana. But um, so that was true uh, for us. And a daughter of ours has a couple adopted uh, boys. Um, a couple of my sisters actually have adopted uh, children. So in a variety of ways, just in terms of my extended family, uh, we have quite a bit of contact uh, with it. Actually, one of my older sister ran, who just retired, but was a director of a big adoption agency uh, for quite a while. Um, gradually, I've, I, I've come to realize that we may think of adoption a little too much just as an alternative to abortion. I mean, it is that, and it's an important alternative, but it's not just that. I mean, wholly apart from the issue of abortion, there are just a lot of children in the world who need families. Uh, to belong to. And when we started doing the foster care in my wife and I, it was just after our third child and whom we thought was our youngest and last child had begun Mm -hmm. school. And uh, that's a moment when you sort of take stock, you know, and try to figure out. And um, my wife thought she might like to do this. And so I just said, okay. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't any deep thought uh, involved in it, but it I mean, it turned out to be a formative experience for all of us. At one point in your opening chapter, you are summarizing an, another author, and you, you write, Christians, at any rate, are called to recognize as kin, as their own flesh and blood, those with whom they do not share traceable genetic material. A history of relationship, commitment sustained over time, is what forms and sustains the bond of father and mother with their children. Is that uh, is that a good working definition or it's i think we need to supplement it in one way but it is good that's that's really a, a sort of my description of uh, the views of a guy named russell moore who's actually written a nice book on adoption mm-hmm. um and is a well-known baptist uh, theologian i think we need to supplement it in some sense i mean the, the family is 
a created structure as well. I mean, the biological family is. And if we didn't have biological families, we probably wouldn't have a paradigm to know what we meant when we talked about uh, families. But that's not the only way to form a family. And uh, being a parent, being a father or mother, is not primarily a matter of sort of um, transmitting traceable DNA to the next generation. That's that's not what it's about. It's about this long-term covenant, um, as God covenants with us uh, in adoption. So we do uh, with our children. Um, and uh, so while I'd want to just sort of supplement what Russell Moore says with the recognition that the created biological genetic bond um, is important and meaningful and and sort of central to what we have understand a family to be it it's only a paradigm for what can be formed in other ways as well and if we think that the um, primary the thing of primary importance in forming a family is to have a connection of DNA that that's why we have people running off um, to try to get what they call a child of their own um, through various forms of assisted reproduction, some of which end up giving them a child who is not even their own genetically because they've gotten donated uh, gametes. So um, the, the whole notion of uh, genetic connection, while very important, obviously, and meaningful, just needs to be thought through more carefully. And um, that's one of the things I was trying to think through as I worked on the adoption issue kind of thinking about this idea of covenanting and, and even sustained commitments over time, I do have to ask about Carter Sneed, one of his, what he tells us is his favorite things he's ever read. And it was a 1991 essay of yours in First Things called, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. Um, you describe your own reflections on raising children beginning thusly. I have sweated in the hot sun teaching four children to catch and hit a ball, to swing a tennis racket and shoot a free throw. I have built blocks and played games I detest with and for my children. I have watched countless basketball games made up of largely bad passes, traveling violations, and shots that missed rim and backboard. Why should I not be a bit of burden to these children in my dying? Well, is there a relationship between this essay and what you've written in Not By Nature But By Grace? Oh, I think there is. Um, that little passage that you read, by the way, actually got excerpted and reprinted in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Um, it was, that was a fun piece for me to do. I'll just tell you a bit about how it came. Back at that time, uh, sort of for my sins, I was serving on uh, the, the hospital ethics committee of a small little hospital in Oberlin. Um, uh, if you teach the kind of things I teach, you end up getting asked to serve on hospital ethics committees. And I don't actually believe that they function very well most of the time. But at the time I was serving on it, and they try to do various sort of public educational things. Yeah. And this was a Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and the the committee had this public panel discussion in the library uh, in Oberlin. Actually, there was a decent turnout uh, from uh, uh, people. But as we're talking about this, oh, and the subject matter was mainly about uh, advanced directives, uh, uh, you know, authorizing other people to make health care decisions for you as you get older and perhaps can't make them yourself and so forth. And and I, I actually am a person who believes that the living will is a very bad idea, and I was um, trotting out my theories about this uh, for the good folks. <laughs> and um, uh, 
but but also listening. And I realized as we're going along, sort of my mind started working on a, on a couple different tracks that um, people who were asking questions are actually more often commenting. They weren't really asking questions. You know, as it's often the case, they were getting up and commenting. But they were all saying things like, uh, it, it sort of in opposition to my notion that a living will is a bad idea, um, that, oh, I wouldn't want to burden my children. I'd want them to know exactly, you know, what I wanted and so forth. And I just started thinking about that and ended up writing this little piece, which is, I mean, the serious point in it is about advanced directives, uh, actually. But along the way, I had a little fun uh, <laughs> with, uh, with that. And I, I, I mean, I think the connection to the kind of larger interest in familial bonds and the uh, adoption book in general is that while familial relations are satisfying and fulfilling and bring great happiness and life would be the poorer uh, without them, um, uh, they do also burden us. And if you don't want those burdens, you can't be a member of a family because that's what a family is. Um, you, If you buy into it, you're buying into uh, burdens. And I just decided I'd, uh, I'd say that fairly directly. And it was, it was, as I say, it was a fun piece to write, but right. it, was, it was a serious point about what it means to be a member of a family. Well, Gilbert Mylander, thank you very much for the conversation. Your book, I, I must say, as one who is also surrounded by many families here in, in the Notre Dame community in South Bend, many adoptive families and, and families that are formed through adoption. And reading this really is uh, kind of insightful in dealing with these questions. Like you say, we're, we're talking about commitments that mm-hmm. we form and then live those out. That's well, maybe you'll sell a few copies for me, Ken. <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. Sure. Thank you to Gilbert Mylander. His book, Not by Nature but by Grace, Forming Families Through Adoption, is available now wherever the finest books are sold, and you can find a link in the show notes. Learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We'd love your feedback. Contact the show by emailing cecpodcast at nd.edu. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions.